respiratory tract infections constitute one of the most common acute illnesses evaluated, particularly in the pediatric outpatient setting. These infections range from a common cold to life-threatening illnesses such as epiglottitis. The average incidence of the common cold in toddlers is about six episodes per year, with that number increasing in children attending creche. That's a lot of stuffy noses and scratchy throats to deal with. Clinical manifestations of these conditions often show considerable overlap with allergic conditions. In an effort to combat the unwarranted use of antimicrobial therapy, it is essential to differentiate between conditions affecting the upper respiratory tract that necessitate the use of antibiotics and those that don't. This is Microbe Mail, and I'm your host, Bindana Chibabai. And as you've guessed it, today we're talking to treat or not to treat upper respiratory tract infections. My guest today is Dr. Nosisa Sipambo, and I'd like to welcome you, Nosisa, for joining me on Microbe Mail today. And please tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Vin. Uh, thank you for having me. And uh, so I'm a pediatrician and a pediatric infectious diseases specialist. I work at uh, Paraguanas uh, Hospital. It varies quite a lot from either being the third largest hospital in the world or the seventh largest hospital in the world. But either way, you know, it's in the top 10 and yes. it's a large hospital. And we see a lot, a lot, a lot of kids. Yes. That's me. Wonderful to have you on. And you're right. It doesn't matter whether it's top three or top seven. It's up there in the top 10 and it's a massive hospital. So your experience and the exposure that you've had at this hospital is, is so valuable. So I'm so glad to have you here today. Thank you. So a couple of quick reminders before we start talking upper respiratory tract infections. Remember to sign up on the Microbe Mail website. You can also subscribe and rate Microbe Mail on your favorite podcast player or your podcast player of choice. Remember to follow social on social media. You'll find Microbe Mail on Twitter, Instagram, and on Facebook. And remember to also share Microbe Mail with your friends, colleagues, coworkers, and students as well. Okay, Nosisa, are you ready to chat? Treat or not treat? Yes, let's chat. I love chatting. <laughs> Okay, wonderful. So I'm going to head like nose diving into this one. Um, and funny enough that we're nose diving into upper respiratory tract infections because I myself am suffering with an upper respiratory tract infection this week. So I'm embodying exactly what we're talking about today. <laughs> um, so the first question, and I'm not going to ask you know, starting off with which are the pathogens, et cetera, because I'm assuming you're going to talk about each of those um, as you answer your question. So first question, does the presentation with a common cold and a cough warrant the use of antibiotics? Very good question, Vin. And if I, if I have to say, uh, currently, and especially in this particular season, I'm sure you, a lot of households can relate to what you are experiencing. Mm. So the short answer to the question is no. And I'm going to expand on that. So by definition, the common cold is an acute, so short duration, self-limiting viral infection, viral infection of the upper respiratory tract. So it involves in varying degrees, sneezing, nasal congestion, rhinorrhea, 
sore throat, cough, low-grade fever, headache, malaise, earache, and earache more especially in young children. So this is a viral infection and definitely does not warrant uh, prescription and use of uh, antibiotics. Thanks. And it's important that you talk about that earache because I think, especially as parents, you think, oh my goodness, my child's got an, an earache. There must be an ear infection, but that isn't always true. So it's important to consider, is this all just part of the common cold? And in terms of viruses, we must remember that the most common cause of the common cold is the rhinovirus, not so. Absolutely, the nose virus. Mm. <laughs> or, or we could also call it rhinoceros virus since we do live in Africa. <laughs> because you do feel like you've got a giant nose when you've got it. That's true, that's true. <laughs> okay, and then moving on to specimen collection. So should we be collecting nasal swabs and sending them for bacterial culture in patients who have mucopurulent secretions? And, and I'm going into this question because often the common cold is snotty noses. So when people have these mucopurulent secretions, should we be doing nasal swabs? So once again, I'm going to give you one of those short answers that I will expand into. But I think that the idea around the short answers is that, you know, this has been, it's not a gray area and it is well researched and well known and, there, and therefore it should be well practiced. That the short answer is, you know, the mucopurulent nature of the secretions reflects the action of neutrophils, not necessarily bacteria. Mm. And most common cause of acute rhinitis and rhinosinusitis is once again viral. Mm. And the nose is not a sterile site. Thus, the swabs results more likely will reflect colonization rather than an infection. So even if uh, you send them off, they're actually going to throw you off because you are going to pick up bugs that are normally there in that site, colonizing, and it's not that you've got a bacterial infection. Yeah, that's very, very helpful. I think a lot of laboratories, in fact, um, would reject a nasal swab. It's part of the rejection criteria that they wouldn't process nasal swabs. But if you're in an area that does process nasal swabs, remember and just bear in mind what Nasisa said about it being non-sterile and representing colonization. Nasisa, is there a way that one can differentiate clinically between acute bacterial rhinosinusitis and viral rhinosinusitis? Uh, yes, Vin, there actually is. And, uh, and this all falls within uh, the, the clinical uh, space. So you don't need any fancy tests to be able to do that. Mm. So the main thing is just the duration of the illness. With acute rhinosinusitis is predominantly a viral uh, illness. Mm. And the definitions of what constitutes acute may vary a little bit, uh, but, you know, it can go even up to four weeks. But generally, you know, we are talking about the first week, first sec the, the second week, mm. uh, not even up to uh, four weeks that, you know, if you are in this acute phase, you know, this is predominantly a viral illness. And less than 2% is going to be a bacterial. So 98% is going to be a viral. And the nice thing is that the management is symptomatic for 
go with these conditions. So if you are sitting there worrying about the 2%, uh, there's no need to worry about it. If you've got the acute, even if you are sitting with the 2% that is a, a bacterial, uh, it will resolve without antibiotics if, as well. So the management of acute rhinosinusitis is actually completely symptomatic and doesn't need antibiotics. Even the 2% bacterial will, res will resolve. And the cause of the illness is actually spontaneous improvement within seven to 10 days. And you may suspect a bacterial in infection if the patient starts experiencing worsening of symptoms instead of progressively getting better or they experience new onset of fever. So they got better, but now they've got a new fever again. And then of course, if you experience any complications like periorbital swelling or cellulitis or even uh, uh, meningitis. So I think it is uh, quite uh, practical and um, quite easy to do to actually uh, differentiate between bacterial and viral rhinosinusitis. That was a nice way to kind of put it all together and differentiate it, but also helpful to know that, to be honest, in most circumstances, it doesn't matter whether it's viral or bacterial, as you said, unless it kind of moves on to um, progresses to other signs and symptoms of extension, essentially. So then when should one actually attempt to establish the etiological diagnosis? of acute bacterial rhinosinusitis? So very rarely, Vin, because I think once we've gone over, you know, that acute setting that, you know, you really shouldn't, you don't need to establish the etiology. Uh, so in certain instances where you've got a lack of a response or you are now concerned that, you know, you are experiencing that worsening uh, or you've got the complications, or you are dealing with an immunocompromised patient where possibly some unusual organisms may be uh, causing this uh, rhinosinusitis. But once again, you are in that spectrum where you are no longer acute. Mm -hmm. You are now experiencing you know, the uh, worsening or even the complications. That's when you should attempt to uh, establish uh, the, uh, the, the etiology. And even then, you know, in the majority of settings, you can go with the most likely pathogens that are going to cause, uh, in terms of bacteria, this uh, clinical syndrome. And we've got guidelines for that, you know, your amoxicillin or azithromycin in someone who is perhaps uh, allergic to amoxicillin would cover that uh, uh, um, adequately. So... Predominantly, it's going to be when you are thinking that this could be an unusual organism uh, in the setting of an immunocompromised uh, patient. And also, you are having lack of response to the uh, empiric choice of antibiotics. Okay, so now we've already spoken about not doing nasal swabs. So what should be the recommended sample that you send to the lab to try and make the diagnosis? of acute bacterial rhinosinusitis specifically? Very good question, Ben. So once you are in that space where you need to be able to, be, to send a, spectrum, a, a specimen, the principle would be to try and avoid the colonizers. So you can't just swap because that is still going to pick up your colonizers and you may pick up multiple uh, organisms. 
But the suggestion is to do a fiber optic endoscopy and then aspirate. Uh, and then you can send off the pass uh, for uh, MCNS. I would imagine that, you know, uh, the people that uh, do this kind of thing, certainly not me, but um, ENT surgeons uh, are the ones that are, are going to be doing a, a lot of uh, this. And they generally do uh, the imaging first and they look at their CT scans. And on the CT scan, they can see that there's a fluid collection there uh, mm. instead of just a thickened uh, mucosa that they also treat symptomatically and largely without antibiotics. Okay. So it's a fairly invasive specimen to be sending. So one needs to make sure that you're really worried that it's bacterial and not viral before going ahead and doing that. And also lack of response to your empiric choice. Mm. Because, you know, you are going to, initially you're not going to do anything. Subsequently, you're going to get to the point where you are a little bit concerned, you go with your empiric choice. And then from there, then the decision starts coming in whether, you know, do you think this is unusual? This is something that may not be responding to your empiric choice of antibiotics. Yeah. I think we're going to continue talking about what empiric therapy is, but I thought we'll just take a sidestep and quickly talk about the microbiology of acute bacterial rhinosinusitis, because I can kind of hear these niggles from the listeners into the future, Nosisa, <laughs> wondering, okay. now, which are those pathogens once again? <laughs> so things like, um, and we can do this together, Nosisa. So I'm thinking of Haemophilus influenzae being quite a common one. Um, okay. Streptococcus pneumoniae also being quite a common one as well, right? Mm -hmm. um, a couple of gram-negative bacteria, although I think Haemophilus is still your kind of top pathogen. A couple of so when I hear you you going the bacterial route, I'm yes. still thinking viruses. You're still thinking viruses. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna do the list of bacteria and then you can come around and tell us the viruses. So a Staphylococcus aureus. Can sometimes is another gram negative coccus, in fact, called Moraxella cateralis, which sometimes causes it. And then, not too common, but Streptococcus pyogenes or your group A streptococci can also cause bacterial rhinosinusitis. Yes. Yeah. Have you got a list of viruses? Oh my gosh. So, currently, <laughs> we are in the midst of uh, the I don't think the influenza season has properly started, but it's like ticking up, you know. Mm. I think it has quite reached the, the, the signal. Mm. So your influenza A and B is definitely going to do it. Uh, we've just gone through uh, the RSV season, so that's uh, definitely going to do it. And it tends to circulate throughout the year uh, pretty much uh, with uh, RSV, but generally, you know, the early part of the year from about February up, up until now would be the main uh, RSV season. And then you've got just a list of viruses and viruses and, and viruses, rhinovirus, uh, human metanumovirus. So all these viruses can pretty much uh, SARS-CoV-2, uh, so coronavirus can also uh, uh, do it. And then the, the previous coronaviruses, the common human coronaviruses as well, they can uh, do it. Mm. Yeah, so lots of viral pathogens. Just a quick disclaimer for the listeners, Nosisa, we're recording this towards the end of May, but by the time this episode is released, 
some of what Nasisa just said might be very different in terms of the epidemiology that we're seeing at the time of release of this episode. Right. Yeah. So then we were going to talk empiric therapy next, I think. What would be the appropriate empiric therapy, especially in the South African setting? So in our setting, we go with a high dose uh, amoxyl when we are now doing antibiotic therapy. So I'm going to keep going back to this point that, you know, the great majority, you don't need anything but symptomatic treatment. Mm. And then when you are in that group where you are, there's indications for antibiotics, then you do high dose uh, amoxicillin. And uh, and then the other thing is uh, the alternative is with uh, azithromycin. Okay, great. Should additional investigations, and I know you you did mention a bit of imaging earlier, but should additional investigations such as imaging or other be performed routinely for acute um, bacterial rhinosinusitis? Definitely not uh, routinely because the great majority of uh, these patients, it is a clinical diagnosis. You uh, know that the patient is going to experience uh, progressive improvement Mm. over a seven to 10 day uh, uh, period. And as long as they are doing that, then there is no need for any uh, investigations. Mm. But the investigation of choice, once you are in that spectrum where you are concerned, about perhaps an abscess formation or fluid collection would be a CT scan. And the CT scan has got that advantage of uh, showing you both the bones as well, uh, seeing what's happening in terms of any kind of complication with any osteomyelitis, as well as uh, picking up uh, any soft tissue extension versus an MRI, which would not be so great in terms of the bones uh, themselves. But in, especially in pediatrics, you would want to think about, do I do a CT scan or do I do an MRI scan? But the CT scan in this setting is better and they do, uh, you do limited just kind of looking at the sinuses. Mm. Okay. Okay, so that was a lot of chatter about acute bacterial rhinosinusitis. And I think it's time we move away from that one now. So the next thing we're going to talk about is pharyngotonsillitis. And straight immediately into it is, should we consider prescribing antibiotics for pharyngotonsillitis? The million-dollar question, you know, that has seemingly been with us for for the longest time. And sometimes even wonder whether you know, you should try and shift these views because they get so entrenched often. Yeah. So pharyngotonsillitis is overwhelmingly, once again, a viral infection, mm-hmm. you know. And yes, you know, you would be uh, concerned about uh, group A streptococcal uh, strep pyogenes, but, and that accounts for up to about 30% of this uh, clinical uh, syndrome, so 5 to 30% uh, of the clinical syndrome. And both the viral and the bacterial will resolve spontaneously. And there is a small subset of patients in which then you should consider antibiotics. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure whether we want to speak about it now broadly, but you know, the considerations are you are thinking of preventing complications, you are thinking of both the non separative and separative uh, complications from this uh, condition. And the big one is the non-separative uh, complications, things like acute traumatic uh, fever. 
and there's a subset of those patients that you might be concerned about making sure that they don't develop this particular complication. The other thing you want to do is to prevent transmission, especially where the patient is in contact with an individual who's at risk for acute traumatic fever. So not so much for the patient in this sense, but if you give antibiotics to a patient, then they get a massive reduction in their bacterial load and prevent transmission to this patient who's known to have uh, acute traumatic uh, fever. And of course, to uh, decrease the duration and severity of symptoms, but uh, there's a minor decrease there in terms of uh, duration and severity of uh, Right. So for the listeners who want to hear more about group A streptococcus or streptococcus pyogenes, as Masisa mentioned, you can go back to episode 18 of Microbe Mail, and we talk extensively on this very particular pathogen. So then in terms of collecting samples and testing methods, what is recommended for the diagnosis of acute pharyngotonsillitis, particularly that caused by Streptococcus pyogenes? Good question, and I think I'm going to throw this back at you at some point. Mm. So... <laughs> Because I think we, we don't use this routinely. I mean, we know what the answer is. And I just wanted to find out perhaps from the lab perspective, uh, what you know about the, the use or uptake of these tests. So there's two main tests. Uh, there's the rapid antigen detection test. And the key advantage of it is that it is rapid. So mm. you're going to do the test, you're going to get a rapid result, and you will know right there and then whether you should, this patient uh, needs uh, antibiotics. Mm -hmm. uh, the downside is that, you know, if it is negative, the sensitivity is sitting at around 70%. So you can potentially miss some of the cases. And then the next test is the throat swab and doing a culture, which is much more sensitive, but unfortunately it is going to take uh, longer. So yes, throwing the question back to you, Vin, in terms of, what is your experience from a left perspective of how clinicians take up the use of these tests? So I think it comes back, Nosisa, to what is available and what is offered. So if we think about South African public sector, the culture is not routinely offered. And we also don't have access to those rapid tests. But I think in other parts of the world, those rapid tests are more easily available and so used more commonly. But you're absolutely right in terms of, um, you know, the one being a more rapid result. And so you're able to see that patient make a clinical diagnosis, make a confirmed diagnosis using the rapid test and treating all in the same, all in the same consultation, basically, bearing in mind um, the low sensitivity of those assays versus waiting for the laborious and very long turnaround time culture-based method, which is not, it's not routinely offered um, at most sites. So I think it does come back to where the listeners are based and for them to go to the individual laboratories and find out what is actually available and what is on offer. Great. Thanks, Vin. Sure. So then our last question on Streptococcus pyogenes is how and why should one treat um, an infection by streptococcus pyogenes. And obviously we're going to focus here on just the upper respiratory tract infection, not other infections by this pathogen. So the how is, uh, so with uh, in our guidelines, we use penicillin, so oral penicillin, 
Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a 10-day course. The alternative, because penicillin has to be in a 10-day course, you know, twice a day, is uh, using the injectable penicillin, the benzathine penicillin, which is then a stage dose. Then, you know, you're not too concerned about the patient not completing the course, and uh, there it is sorted right there and there. And then in those patients that are allergic to uh, penicillin, then azithromycin would then be the alternative. And this is actually a shorter kind of duration. It's a daily dose and it's, it's, it's over um, at, at three days. Okay. So it is, we are saying that we can go shorter and shorter. And that's one of the messages we give clinicians all the time. Using the appropriate agent, you can go for a much shorter course. Yeah. And I think the age selection and which patients to treat uh, was covered in that other podcast. So I don't have to necessarily go to that. Good. Yeah. And in fact, we forgot to mention one of the other tests, uh, which, and once again, it's an availability uh, aspect that there are now molecular point of care tests to uh, look for group A streptococcus. Mm. And these are even more sensitive uh, than the top two that uh, we, we mentioned. Okay, great. Now on microbe mail, we like to talk about age differences and gender differences. So I think for this episode, seeing as a lot of what we've discussed already relates to children, are there any gender differences when it comes to upper respiratory tract infections? That is such an interesting question. And I think, you know, my immediate thing when uh, I thought of this was that, no, surely not. Why? <laughs> you know. <laughs> But actually, there's a lot of research that shows that there are some minor gender differences. Oh. So I think this is not something that is going to be of any clinical significance to a clinician. But there are some uh, minor differences that, you know, things like sinusitis, tonsillitis, and otitis externa are more mm -hmm. common in females, whereas mm -hmm. uh, otitis media and croup are more common in males. And there's some thoughts around just gender differences in terms of uh, the anatomy of the upper respiratory tract and their predisposition to, but these are all hypotheses that that slight difference in the anatomy, uh, this is what causes this uh, predisposition. I can vouch for the sinusitis in females because both, okay. my, daughter, <laughs> both my daughter and I constantly suffer from sinusitis. There you go. <laughs> okay. And do you then have some practical tips for a general practitioner who's faced with upper respiratory tract infections all day long on how to reduce inappropriate antibiotic prescribings? Yes. And I think uh, this is something that, you know, as a general practitioner, one should be develop a lot of certainty uh, in it because as you say, rightfully so, this is something that they are going to see quite a lot of. And actually, even in hospital, as out in outpatient settings, mm. you see this quite a lot. Because, you know, the kids that are attending the hospital are going to be getting just as much as the generally well kids get. They will get all of that, plus they will get whatever else they have. So yeah. we all have to deal with this aspect of the upper respiratory tract uh, infection. Yes. And so the main thing is to remember that this is a clinical symptom. And so when you've got rhinorrhea, conjunctivitis, cough, perhaps diarrhea, especially in young kids, mm. discrete ul ulcerative lesions or vesicles, 
you know, this is steering you towards more of a, a viral illness. And then, of course, vaccines have virtually eliminated uh, the clinical syndromes of epiglottitis and, and diphtheria. So we are hardly seeing that. So mm. you are largely going to be seeing viral illnesses. And perhaps if you've got a bit of uncertainty, you know, get your patients to come back, offer them that option of saying, you know, I'm not going to prescribe antibiotics. This is what I expect, you know, the clinical cause of this illness is going to be like, you know, come back, call me if you are not getting better and you will develop then the confidence that actually that this is the way to treat this. And there is a whole range of symptomatic things that you can do to manage and you get symptomatic relief from mm. giving all the symptomatic treatment. Yeah, very, very helpful advice and very important as well. Asisa, it's time for our spotlight feature. Mm -hmm. And I've got a micro game which I've come up with on the fly, although done something similar on a previous episode. <laughs> and I'm going to put you on the spot and we're going to do a microbe spelling test. I hope you're ready. Okay. <laughs> and we mentioned this pathogen earlier. <clears throat> so I'm going to see whether you can correctly spell Morexella cateralis. Aha. <laughs> so let's, let, let's go with the first one. So okay. Morexella. Yes. Uh, M O yes. R A X E double L A. Ten points for that one. <laughs> and the species Cateralis. Aha. Uh -huh. So C A T A R H A L I S. I'll so go with that. So that's where it gets tricky. So I'm going to give you nine points out of 10 for the species and 10 points out of 10 for Marexella. And that's because Cateralis has two R's in it. It's a double. Oh my goodness. Why did they do that? I know it because they just like tricking people. <laughs> Taxonomists, they're a class in the old. <laughs> they're doing a bit on, on rhinorrhea on that uh, Cateralis. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Maybe that's why the two R's are together. <laughs> also causing rhinorrhea. Okay, so have you got a quick take-home message for our listeners, Nosisa? Um, I would say that, you know, upper respiratory tract infections are predominantly viral. You know, rarely do you need antibiotics. And the most effective treatment is symptomatic. Okay. And even rhinosinusitis and otitis media are going to be predominantly viral. And they also really need antibiotics. And so that's your default should be actually be no antibiotics. I think that's uh, my biggest uh, take home message that your default should be no antibiotics. Mm -hmm. And rather than go into special situations where you might need uh, antibiotics. Yeah. And just to remember that, you know, antibiotics are not harmless. You know, there is uh, the diarrhea associated with it acutely in terms of the core omaxiclev, uh, in particular, hypersensitivity reactions. And of course, just on a public health perspective, the increase in antibiotic resistance, mm. the unnecessary expense. And now there's increasing uh, uh, work showing that there is long-term 
uh, side effects with uh, changes in the microbiome and the association of those changes with chronic non-communicable diseases. Absolutely. And we are currently sitting on a huge epidemic of chronic non-communicable diseases. And you know, anything that can prevent those you know, is well worth uh, practicing. Absolutely. Very, very, very valuable words there. Thank you so much, Nasisa. And thank you so much for joining me on this episode today. I had such a lovely time chatting and listening to all of your advice. Um, it was really great. I hope you're going to join me again sometime soon. Oh, great. Uh, thanks, Vin. Looking forward to it. So listeners, remember to subscribe. Give us that five-star rating if you haven't yet already. And remember all of the signups and follows wherever you can. And that's it from me. Until next time, see you again soon with more Contagious Mail. Mm-hmm.